get my water just in case. So what's the, what's the hardest thing that you have ever been asked to do? I'll just kind of start from the basics. Maybe your dad or your mom asked you to do something you thought was impossible, so you had to break away from your video games for a minute or your phone, like cutting the grass in the Georgia heat or taking the garbage out when it's cold outside. Or maybe at your job, uh, your boss or your commanding officer, if you're in the military, has asked you to do something difficult. And so it's something that you know will take a lot of time away from your family and pro- probably take a lot of personal time away from you as well. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a hard task that you've been given. Or maybe you're currently being asked to do something unexpected right now. You're sitting in it right now. So maybe you're being asked to suffer in a certain way. Maybe you're being asked to deal with a particular trial that you wouldn't have chosen on your own, but God has seen fit to allow you to do so. Or maybe you're in a season of waiting that is taking way longer than you expected. Well, I don't want to belittle any of those things. Well, maybe they're taking the trash out and the cutting the grass in the Georgia heat, but, but, but all of those things, I mean, you might be walking through some of the hardest things you've ever had to walk through right now, but I can probably say uh, with certainty that, uh, and I think you would agree as well, that what Abraham is asked to do in Genesis chapter 22 is the hardest thing anybody ever has ever been asked to do, humanly speaking. Actually, this, was a, this is considered in a lot of circles a scandalous request that God has made of Abraham when you think about it. This is why so many have a problem with this story, and, and they base their view of God on it. And so they say things like, if God is so loving, why would he ask of Abraham such a violent act? That seems sick. Bob Dylan, theologian, expresses this sentiment in the first verse of his song, Highway 61. He retells the story of Abraham like this. He sings, Oh, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe says, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. And Abe say, what? Well, obviously we know this isn't how it goes down because James just read the text for us um, and that's not, not exactly how it goes down. But it does express what we're all thinking, doesn't it? It has to. Why would God seemingly commend child sacrifice? That can't be right. God must be putting us on to something here. And for, re- and for these reasons, I think we need to have in mind a few things before we dive into this seemingly difficult text. Because as, as I said a couple of weeks ago, uh, we do bring our own presuppositions about God, uh, about the Bible, about Christianity, uh, to our interpretation of the Bible. So, we're, so we're, t- we're essentially looking, most of the time, looking at the Bible through 21st century lenses, instead of stepping back and looking at it in a more historical perspective, or biblical perspective, for that matter. So the first thing that we need to understand, first and foremost, that we, that we constantly need to be reminded of, at least I do, is God is God, and you are not. You are not God. I don't care how much control you think you have, you are not God. 
God is God, and we are not God. So we can't put him in a box. We can't say, this is how I expect someone like God to, to act and to work. And we can't dictate how he should act. We can't say, well, God, well, God is, is the God of the universe, so he should act this way. He should give me all of these good things. That's not up to us. So instead, we need to frame our understanding of who God is and his work biblically. Always looking back to the scriptures. So just let me give you a few references. The book of Job. This is Job. You know, if you know the, uh, the, the story of Job, Job su- suffered probably uh, greater than any human being has, has suffered besides Christ, I would say, and maybe Paul. I mean, lost everything that you hold dear. Kids, money, wealth, um, status, his health, everything gone. Okay, everything that you could think of that could go wrong went wrong with Job. And this is what he says about God. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways which is amazing language. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? Job, just lost everything, is saying, how small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand it? Which is no one can understand it. Then Isaiah writes, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then skipping over to Romans 11, Paul writes in this New Testament letter, O the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable or mysterious are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? So these verses, I highlight these verses because for us, just a reminder that that God is not you and that he is actually more intricate and even more incomprehensible than our finite minds can handle. Or more incomprehensible than you are probably comfortable with because you probably come in here with some idea of God that is easily, uh, easily grasped. It's tangible. He is way more uh, incomprehensible than that. And this is the conclusion that the biblical, you can see this pattern throughout scriptures, this is the conclusion that the biblical writers and, and the characters who are interacting with God, this is, this is all of their conclusions. That they get to this point where they're saying, who can understand the mind of the Lord? Who can understand his ways? We, we are only seeing a glimpse. We are only scratching the surface of who God is. And this is where we find our man Abraham in chapter 22. His reality is framed by who God is. Not who he thinks God should be or how he thinks God should act. He's done that already in his life. We've seen that pretty clearly. And we know this is his framework now because of what he says in the heart of this narrative when he's marching towards the place of sacrifice with his son and Isaac, his son, asks him, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering, dad? And Abraham's answer is, the Lord will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. The Lord will do this. So Abraham's entire life 
is framed by the gospel promise that he's received from God back in Genesis chapter 12. That's his framework. That's what, that's what he is working from. And this frames everything about him and how he sees everything he's presented with in the course of his life. Now, certain parts of his life, it takes him a minute to get there. So he has to fail and walk through some of that um, in order to get there. But he gets there eventually because of the framework in which he has and his understanding of who his God is. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He writes this. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun, the S-U-N, that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So think about it. If Abraham had the belief of a skeptic, this would be a totally different story. If he didn't believe God to be good, he would have run in the other direction and probably trying to concoct some sort, of, uh, some sort of plan B that he's done in the past. But Abraham doesn't do that in Genesis 22. When he's asked to do the hardest thing that he's ever been asked to do in his entire life, Abraham remains steadfast. Abraham has eyes of faith that are adjusted to the gospel reality, which is the snake crusher is coming through this line. God has promised it, and that snake crusher's name is Jesus Christ. So three lessons we learn from this text today that will also help adjust our eyes to the gospel reality as well. Okay, so the first one is this, the test of faith. The second is the obedience of this faith. And then third is the results of this obedience. The test of faith, the obedience of this faith, and the results of this obedience. So first, the test of faith. The greatest test test in Abraham's life comes after he has finally received the long-awaited promise. If you just march through the text, Uh, or through the story of Abraham that we've been marching through the past several months, you will see over and over and over again, God is promising Abraham and Sarah a son who would carry on the line. Over and over again that happens. And now this test involves giving this very son back to God. Now, we probably know this feeling a little bit, so maybe you order something on Amazon and you're super excited about it and you're just anticipating, you just keep checking the, the, the shipping date and like where the UPS guy is in your neighborhood and, and you're so excited and then you get said item. I know this is a terrible illustration in comparison to Isaac. Okay, just hang with me on this, okay? But then you get the item and it's either broken, uh, it doesn't fit, it's not what you expected it to be, um, and you have to send it back. You have to give it back, essentially. So you know that little bit of, of, a, of, a, of disappointment here. Now take that and, and multiply that by like a million. Because it pales in comparison to how Abraham was probably feeling at this particular moment when God asked of him his son. So from every kind of worldly angle... This was the most unreasonable, the most illogical request God could have asked of Abraham or anyone else on the planet. Give me your son as a sacrifice. 
But if we're careful Bible readers and we're looking at the text, there is actually no thought in the mind of God of an actual sacrifice of Isaac in the text. Did you catch that? No thought. But Abraham doesn't know this. Abraham is, is, is fully aware that he is about to, have to, ha, to offer his son as a bloody burnt offering to God. So this part of the narrative provides us with an important lesson about how the Lord deals with his people or how the Lord uh, interacts with his people. And that is that God sometimes tests them. And it's these two words that the author lets us in on in verse 1 of the true purpose of this particular episode. So this is the first time the word test has actually been used in the Bible. Here in uh, chapter 22, verse 1, where Moses uh, says, after these things, God tested Abraham. And it's a word that means to put to proof or to put to the test is what it means uh, in the Hebrew. And so by putting Abraham to the test here, What God is doing is God is looking for proof concerning his faith. God is looking for proof concerning Abraham's faith. Does he really trust me now that he has a son? Now that he has a a son from, from him and his wife Sarah, does he still trust me for this promise? Will he cling to Isaac Or will he cling to God in response to this impossible request? So testing is a pattern we see in the Bible. It's not just happening to Abraham here. It started uh, at the very beginning with Adam and Eve being tested in the garden with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then in chapter 4, it's passed down to the kids, so with Cain. And even in chapter 4, God even lets him know in a way that he is being tested when he tells him, Hey, look, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. This is how you pass the test, Cain. This is how you do it. You rule over your sin, and we won't have this problem. Then if you kind of fast forward to to the book of Exodus, chapter 15, in the wilderness, you know, God has just delivered his people in this miraculous way, um, and and he's, he's provided for them all along in the wilderness. Uh, he's never, you know, when they get to the end of the Exodus story, um, one of the testimonies is, our sandals never wore out. For 40 years, never had to get a new pair of sandals. So God is taking care of his people here. And he says in verse 26 of Exodus chapter 15, uh, he said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God, this is the test, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands, and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So the test is, will you obey me? Will you trust me? Or will you disobey me? Will you not trust me? So back to God testing Abraham. We could say that God has been testing Abraham all along. I mean, just look back at his life in chapter 12, Uh, of Genesis is the first test uh, of Abraham. God comes to him seemingly out of the blue in a lot of ways um, and says, leave your land, leave your family, and go to the land that I'm going to give to you. And he does, without hesitation. He gathers up his things, 
and his people, and he leaves, not knowing where he's going. Genesis 12, uh, 1 through 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And then Moses records for us, So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Well, in this second, in the second test, which is in the exact same chapter, uh, Abraham doesn't do so well. He fails the test. When he lies and uh, essentially puts his wife and the promise of the Messiah on the line. Just because he was afraid of Pharaoh. And we can say that Abraham's failure in these tests is a replay of Adam and Eve's failure in Genesis chapter chapter 3. He is carrying on the pattern of the sin nature. Then again, another test comes in chapter 16. So after the promise has been given once again, Abraham listens to the voice of his wife, uh, Sarah, and has a child with her maidservant, Hagar. They take matters into their own hands. So once again, this is a replay of Genesis chapter 3. And as we can see in the text today, God is not done testing Abraham. And this test seems to be the ultimate test. These other tests pale in comparison uh, to the test that, that, that God gives to Abraham here in asking him to give his one and only son Isaac back to him. But it doesn't pale in comparison to what God wants to do in Abraham's life through this test. Because these tests are not meant to, 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 to be torture. Tests are not meant to be a cruel game that God plays with his creation just to kind of see uh, what, what adventure they choose. Rather, it is a means in which God is drawing his children closer to him. That's what a test is meant to do. It's a test of Abraham's faith in the God who is there. Will Abraham trust God in this hard thing? And you see that Abraham's faith in this situation is a, is a proof to us concerning the reality of God. And it's in our second point that we learn this through the obedience that comes from this faith that Abraham has in the God who is there. Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So the commentator, one of the commentators that I use, his name's Alan Ross, um, but he says this. He says, on the human side of this test, we discover the proper response. For Abraham exhibited the, his faith through obedience, showing that he feared God. So Abraham's obedience to God's command is not driven by anything else other than this, other than his fear of the Lord. He has seen God's work. He has seen God personally act on his behalf throughout his life. So besides being a psychopath, this is the only thing that could drive a grown man up a mountain for three days, carrying all of the supplies intended to kill his beloved son. It's only a fear of the Lord that would drive a man to do that. 
So obviously we know that, that faith is not a blind leap into the dark. So if anybody ever tells you that faith is a blind leap, that is not a definition of faith. That is a definition of foolishness. Why would you do that, you know? Um, it's, it's, it's a definition of foolishness. So faith, is, faith is actually this. Faith is walking according to something we know to be true. That's what biblical faith is. That is what true faith is. Walking according to something we know to be true. And Abraham demonstrates this sort of faith through his obedience to God's command. He knows God to be true. And he walks accordingly. The late pastor James Montgomery Boyce, um, one of my favorite preachers, by the way, but he said this. He says, Abraham was not only exercising faith, however, he was also working with it, pondering the situation, trying to figure out what was happening. So I think this gives us a better understanding as to what is going on here. So we know Isaac's not going to be offered, but Abraham doesn't know that, okay? He is, not, he is, not, he is fully intending to put the knife through his son's chest in just a matter of days. So you have to imagine yourself in Abraham's situation here. He has been promised Isaac over and over again for the past 25 years, and now God is asking him to sacrifice him? Even the author Moses uh, emphasizes this in how he structures his words in verse 2. Look at verse 2 there. It's kind of a three-part structure. So he said, uh, talking about God, take your son, one, your only son, two, Isaac, whom you love. So Moses is kind of building the case there. He's, kind of, he's trying to make us feel this weight of what is happening here, of what God is asking, asking of Abraham here. He wants us to see the absurdity of God's command even. But more importantly, I think he wants us to think a certain way. And Abraham helps us with this. We, see it, we saw it in his actions in verse 3 that follows the command. He gathers everything he needs for a sacrifice. He knows how to build altars. We already know that. So he knows exactly what he needs, gathers all that, takes his, takes his men, takes his son, and immediately obeys. We saw that in chapter 12. When Abraham was called to leave, all that was familiar. He immediately obeys. Without hesitation, he gathers everything that he needs, gathers his wife, and he sets out on his way, having no idea where he was going. He obeys. No hesitation, no protests, no, no plan B schemes this time. He just goes. So how was he able to do this? How was he able to do this not knowing that God uh, wasn't going to spare the life of his son? So to the naked eye, looking at verses 3 through 4, it shows an old man gathering supplies and making his way to the place where he was to perform a human sacrifice. But to those of us who know the God of the Bible and have seen God's interaction with Abraham over the past couple of months as we've been looking at this part of Genesis, know that there is a lot more happening in these two verses than meets the eye. So I would argue... That in these two verses, which is covering these three days where he's heading up the mountain, that Abraham is working out his theology as he travels these three days. 
as he, as he makes his travel plans and, and even as he, as he looks at the back of his son who is carrying some of the gear that they need for this sacrifice on his journey, Abraham, this entire time, is meditating upon the reality of who God is. And he has to do this because this is the first time in his relationship with God where he is confronted by a conflict between God's command and God's promise. It's a conundrum that he's in. God is commanding, commanding me to do this, but he's promised this. So one of the questions Abraham may have been asking at this point in time is, is God a liar? Have I, have I trusted in some sick liar that has just been toying with me all of my life? This is the question he has to wrestle with and come to a conclusion on. This is something similar I think we should do in our own Christian life. I know deconstruction and, uh, you know, working yourself out of, out of your, your Christianity is really popular right now. And it's, and it's always been popular. There's nothing new under the sun. It's always been popular. People have been deconstructing their faith for centuries. But I think this is one of the things where people who like to de- deconstruct their faith or deconstruct their belief, they miss this. Is that they don't chase their answers down in the very word of God and what the very word of God says about who God is. This is what Abraham does. It's similar to what C.S. Lewis talks about in uh, Mere Christianity when he talks about that Jesus, uh, just looking at Jesus' life, that he could only be one of three things. He's either a liar, uh, he's either a lunatic, or he's Lord. He's one of those three things. And this is what Abraham must determine. Is God a liar? Is God some, some crazy deity in the sky? who just toys with his creation? Or is he Lord Almighty God who keeps his promises? And we see that Abraham is not, he's not just like rehearsing and rehashing uh, over child sacrifice. He doesn't doesn't give us any hint that that's what he's doing. I'm I'm sure his mind would go to that, obviously. But it's not something that he's kind of brooding over as he goes up the mountainside. Nor is he questioning God in this instance. And we know that Abraham is brave enough to question, to question God. He, he does it when he's, when he's pleading on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, pleading on behalf of the righteous. We know that he does it, but he doesn't do that here in Genesis 22. So I think Abraham's mind was more on thoughts like, how can God be true to his promise if I sacrifice Isaac who he said the promise would come through. Uh, what is, or another question, what is God going to do to remain a God of righteousness if I have to go through with all of this? And I believe this is what Abraham was working out on his three-day journey up the mountain. Abraham knows God. He knows him well. And the scriptures call Abraham uh, a friend of God, remember? He's a friend of God. So as he walks, as he, as he looks at his son, the promised one, carry the wood for the altar, Abraham meditates on who God is. Abraham fixes his mind and his heart on the gospel reality. 
Now, let me just ask you this. When you go through a hard situation, or we could say, when you go through a time of testing, when God is testing you, is this how you react? Do you meditate upon the truth and reality of who God is? Is that the first place that you go? Or do you find yourself running away from God? Or complaining? Or embracing anxiety? Or using it as an excuse to deconstruct your faith? Well, God hasn't, God hasn't been good to me, so apparently he must not be real anymore. Because surely this is not what God wants for me, this hard situation that I'm walking through. Do you do that or do you trust the God who has brought you out of the pit? Do you trust the God who has brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light? The God who has rescued you through the greatest sacrifice ever made on the planet. Do you meditate on those things in your hard suffering, in your unexpected situations? This is how Paul puts it, Romans 8.32. He says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. So Paul is saying, hey, remember, remember what God has done for you. He has given his only son. He, has gave, he gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God has done this great act of giving his only begotten son why would he not do these other little things for you? Why would he not carry these other things on to completion for you? He's already done the greatest act in your life that he could ever do. So of course he's not going to stop. So this is what it means to focus your eyes on the gospel reality. And Abraham does this exact thing in Genesis 22. So much so that the conclusion that Abraham comes to at the end of day three would have been seen as foolishness at this time. Not just foolishness, but crazy talk at this time. Because I believe that through his meditation upon who God is, his logical conclusion, his logical con conclusion to this whole situation was resurrection. That was his logical, that's where, he had to, that's where he finished. That was the answer to his question, is God a liar? No. Resurrection. So Abraham had such faith in God to expect something that has never ever happened up to this point in history. A resurrection from somebody from the dead has never happened before. And this is Abraham's conclusion. So we know this because of two things here in the Bible. Okay, first is one that is found in, in verse 5. Look there with me. So they're at the end of the journey. They're about to head up to, to, to build the altar and to, and to offer the sacrifice. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there, worship, and come again to you. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we will together, the two of us, will come back to you. So those last four words show us that Abraham had solved the problem of God's promise on the way up to Moriah. 
Abraham still fully intends to go through with the sacrifice, but because he knew by faith that God would resurrect Isaac, he could say that they would return together. Abraham was trusting in the promise that God had for him, even in this brutal, violent situation that is upon him. Now, I said briefly that this idea would be seen as absurd um, because at, at this point in history, there has not been a resurrection from the dead. Even as you march along in throughout the Bible, you don't really see, uh, we don't see that happening. Resurrection in, in, in biblical history, in that part, part of the world and in that, in that time, because um, we can look back and say, oh, well, Jesus was resurrected. Jesus is alive. You know, he came back from the dead. God raised him from the dead. But during that time, they did not have that context. There was no resurrection happening. But Abraham knew that what was more absurd than resurrection, something that was not talked about or not believed in, something that was more absurd than resurrection was a God who contradicted himself. Abraham saw that as more absurd than killing his son and having him sit back up again and walk back to their servants. It was more absurd that God was a God of contradiction to him. Because resurrection is compatible with the nature of God. Resurrection is compatible with who God is. But a contradiction is not compatible with the nature of God. So if anyone ever tells you that there are contradictions with God or contradictions in the Bible, you can say, because you just heard that from me right now, from uh, Genesis chapter 22, no, that's not true. That's absurd, actually, to say that God contradicts himself. The second reason we know this is Abraham's conclusion is found in the New Testament, which which, um, Gavin read for us earlier in Hebrews chapter 11. I'll just read uh, 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son, his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So again, here's an author building the argument, okay? He's building this, saying Abraham was tested. This is his only, offering up his only son. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This is massive. This is huge what God is asking of, of this man. And then in verse 19, He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He did did raise him from the dead, figuratively speaking, the author is saying. So at this point in history, here in Hebrews, resurrection was a reality because of the resurrection of Jesus. So the author of Hebrews is saying, pointing back in biblical history, pointing back, is saying that Abraham had resurrection faith. That Abraham knew somehow foreshadowing that this is something that God would do. And it's significant. And so while Abraham didn't know fully what God had planned, he was pointing us to something true about the God of the Bible. That the God of the Bible is a God that can resurrect the dead. That he was a God capable of bringing the dead back to life. And so third and finally, we see 
from all of this, the results of this obedience in verses 15 through 19. So it's in this final point and in these final verses that we can see that the results of Abraham's obedience um, uh, affect him and, his, and Isaac immediately, but it also affects everyone that comes after him. So we see the results in verses 12 through 13 when God provides a substitute sacrifice for Isaac, for Abraham and Isaac. There's a ram caught in the thicket just behind them, and that, that ends up being the substitute um, sacrifice for these men, and that's what they offer up. But notice, I want you to notice, because there's a lot there we could go into. I know that, but we're not going to today. We don't have time. But notice the future tense of the name of God that Abraham acknowledges here in verse 14. Abraham says, the Lord will provide. That, that's, that's a name that he is giving to God. The Lord will provide. So that's after he's already, you know, after all of this has already happened. So Abraham is, is pointing to the future. He's saying the Lord will see it through, that he will provide the lamb, he will provide the offspring of Abraham, that he will provide the beloved son, that he will provide the hope of, of the world, the snake crusher, still to come. The biblical theology teaches us, if you were in the biblical theology class, shame on you if you were not, but you have another turn next year, okay? But biblical theology teaches us, or I could give you some good resources and you could just do it yourself, but, uh, but it teaches us that there is, there is continuity and discontinuity in the Bible, Okay? So the continuity here is something that is continuing on. It's a similar pattern. You can kind of see it very, very clearly. So the continuity comes here from the pattern of sacrifice we see throughout the Old Testament. So this sacrifice that we're seeing in Genesis chapter 2, surprisingly, is only the fourth or fifth recorded sacrifice in the Old Testament. It's not until you get to Leviticus where you start to see just blood everywhere. But here it's the fourth or fifth sacrifice recorded. But it's not the sacrifice we expected, nor did Abraham expect. So it must have a deeper meaning than what we simply see here on the surface. Because while there is continuity concerning sacrifice in the Bible, there is also a discontinuity. There's a slight break in the pattern of sacrifice in the Bible. Whereas the sacrifices of the Old Testament are, are continual. You guys have you know, if you, you heard me talk about that before, that the, the priest uh, was constantly just covered in blood throughout the day. I mean, he's constantly killing animals, constantly making these offerings every morning, every evening, every season, every month, all times of the year, constantly making these sacrifices. But in the New Testament, the pattern of sacrifice is broken up in the shape of Jesus Christ, the God-man, God incarnate, who John the Baptist refers to immediately upon seeing him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here is the Lamb that Abraham is pointing to. Here is the Lamb that God will provide. And how does he do this? Well, he does it through sacrifice. So what we learn is that, that what God stopped Ab Abraham from doing when he stops Abraham from killing his son, God actually fulfills in Christ. God actually carries it through. 
So this is why you have a verse like John 3.16, noting that it is Jesus who is saying this. Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his son, his only son, Jesus. That structure sound familiar to you? Gave his son, his only son, Jesus. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So here is the Son of God, the Lamb of God, saying in his very own words what sacrifice he is following through with. A sacrifice that he makes on his own accord, that he volunteers for. He is not forced to do this by God. He makes it on his own accord. A sacrifice that is specific. It is a sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world because we are all full of sin. And we need a sacrifice that can do that. And that is only found in Christ alone. It's a sacrifice that makes you right, makes you righteous before a holy God. And it's in verse 18 of Genesis 22 that God says this is true, not only for Abraham, but for all who put their faith in Christ. So God says to Abraham, maybe you caught this, and in your offspring, singular, referring to Jesus, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So a result of Abraham's obedience is that this gospel reality is made available to everyone. It's even an early hint of John's vision in, uh, of this very thing in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. So it's a little bit of a spoiler, but it's a good spoiler. When John says, after this, I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. So all nations, what God is referring to, this is the same thing that he's referring to here in, Genesis, in Revelation 7. All nations, every nation, every tribe, every people, every language spoken. Think about Wycliffe Bible translators. They're doing a great work. They're going to make this happen as well. Every language will be spoken. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice together. I would imagine it's probably in every, every language is saying it at the same time. So James Walton will be able to speak three of those languages. Um, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every nation, every language, every tribe will be proclaiming this gospel reality. So maybe you're here and you too are looking for a way out. You're looking around at your life and you're saying, things are crazy, I don't understand what's happening, um, I'm confused, I don't have real hope, I'm not truly happy, I'm doing all of these things, and they all come to an end at some point, and I'm just chasing my tail. Maybe you're looking around for something, but you don't know what it is that you're looking for. St. Augustine said this famous quote, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Until they find their rest in God. So until, you, until your soul finds its rest in God, I can guarantee you that you will be restless for the rest of your life. But might I suggest 
that you are asking the same exact question that Isaac asked, that King David asked, that the prophet Zechariah asked, and the prophet Malachi asked, and all of those who were in that kind of 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and New Testament, all of them were asking the same question. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And it's John the Baptist in the New Testament who gives us the answer as he points to the incarnate Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is your Lamb. And He is the one who says to you, Come to me and I will give you rest. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us the Lamb, giving us your only begotten Son, Jesus. We are a sinful people, and we are in need of your forgiveness. We are in need of you acting, because we can't do anything apart from that. And so God, we are thankful that you did what you didn't allow Abraham to do, and that is to give your only son so that we could have forgiveness of our sins, that, so that we could be made right before a holy God, so that we could be in relationship with a holy God, and so that we could live uh, what Jesus calls the abundant life. And I pray, God, that that would be all of our reality, that all of us here in this room would be around that throne singing together with all of the nations, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.